So I'll begin by saying today is the first day of spring, and the, the more formal name for that is the vernal equinox. And I'll just talk about the equinox for a second. Um, equinox is a planet-wide event. Every point on the planet has 12 hours a day and 12 hours a night today. It's one of only two days of the year, the other equinox being the other one, when the sun rises due east and sets due west. For the next six months in the northern hemisphere, the days will be longer than the nights, and the points of rising and setting are going to be drifting further and further north. So by the middle of summer, we're going to get sunrise way in the northeast, get this giant wraparound arc going into the southern sky, and then setting in the northwest. And that's what contributes to the long days in summer. Today is dawn at the North Pole. And for the next six months, the North Pole will have 24 hours a day uninterrupted sunlight. Today is dusk at the South Pole. And for the next six months, the South Pole will have 24 hours a day uninterrupted darkness. You can imagine how cold that is. And of course, those, those places of light and dark, 24-hour daylight or dark, expand as we move toward the solstice. So by the solstice, everything inside the Arctic Circle will have total sunlight, and everything inside the Antarctic Circle will have total darkness. The All ancient peoples were deeply aware of the equinox. I remember seeing at one point when I was on the Anasazi reservations, there was it was kind of a building built into a cliff and the outer outer wall just had a slit and then he went inside on there was an inner wall with a slit also and then there was a back room. And it was only on the equinox that the sun would shine perfectly through one slit, through the other slit, and then illuminate a marker on the back wall. And so the whole thing was constructed very specially to show the exact moment of equinox. Um, the equinox was really, throughout the Northern Hemisphere, was the, the beginning of the new year. It was the, the, it was the most important religious holiday in many ancient traditions. It was rebirth of the earth, the rebirth of life. Um, it was only because the Romans, for some reason, decided to put New Year's in the beginning of winter, that that's where our New Year's is. Um, and really, echoes of those older dead religions are heard in the, the later living religions that we now have, both Passover in Judaism, Pesach, and Easter, which are the two foundational holidays of Judaism and Christianity, respectively. Both of them are vernal equinox holidays, essentially. Uh, you know, in one way or another, birth of new life or rebirth, something of this nature. Um, both of them have dates that are keyed to the vernal equinox. Easter is always, for example, the first Sunday after the first full moon after the vernal equinox. I love how pagan that is. And I'll say also, it's funny... Ancient people always knew about the equinox. 
modern people don't know about it. Like, you might not have known at all if I hadn't ranted about it for a few minutes, you know? Um, many people go through their whole day not knowing it's the equinox. But what's really funny is we're all vividly aware of daylight savings time. And everyone has all kinds of opinions, and didn't we ban that, and blah, 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 and we should ban it, and, you know, we love having strong opinions about it. And it's funny, because daylight savings time, nothing about heaven and earth changes with daylight savings time. We change our clocks. It's a, it's a game we play with ourselves. Whereas the vernal equinox is an earth-wide event, you know? And it, it's very funny, it, it always strikes me as almost this archetypal human situation, how we are so much more focused on the games we play with ourselves than we are on objective reality. You know, it just, it, it's such a telling um, metaphor. So I'm going to talk today, inspired by the equinox, I'm going to talk about inner renewal which seems in sync with the equinox as well as the, the equinox holidays. And to begin, I'm going to talk a little about brain anatomy. And this, some of you have heard me talk about this a little bit before. In the brain, there are what are called top-down and bottom-up circuits. Bottom-up circuits go from perceptual centers up to memory centers. And we're using our bottom-up circuits when we're learning something new, when we're trying to figure out what we're learning and we're storing those memories. We use top-down circuits from memory centers to perceptual centers when we're recognizing something that we already remember. We already have the memory and it's just recognition. Now, of course, children are trying to figure out the world all the time, you know, especially young children. They're trying to make sense of everything. So children are in their bottom-up circuits all the time. Um, as we move more toward adulthood and maturity, we tend to default more toward the top-down circuits. The big advantage of the top-down circuits is, of course, efficiency, you know, we don't want to have to re-figure out what a stapler is or what a fork is every time we pick it up. It's very convenient that we could just pick it up and use it without even thinking about it. We recognize, you know, this sort of thing. But there's a price for that efficiency. And the price is that those two circuitries have very different emotional tones. Um, the bottom-up circuits stimulate joy, stimulate a sense of wonder. Um, there's often exploration and discovery associated with that. In fact, much of the, what is called the magic of childhood is, from the, is caused by the fact that children are in their bottom-up circuits almost nonstop. By contrast, the top-down circuits, they have no real emotional tone. They're kind of flat, boring, you know, there's, there's nothing, there's no pizzazz to them, you know? And so the trouble is, if I'm living 100% of my time in top-down circuits, then I'm walking through a world where everything is just known, 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 known. 
and everything is flat and dull and meaningless. And so, even though it's efficient to be able to use the top-down circuits, we don't have to default to them 100% of the time. And in fact, mindfulness is an exercise to re-stimulate the bottom-up circuits. You know, yes, I know what a spoon looks like, but I've ever really looked at it and carefully studied it and appreciated just the artistry of what, what this object is, you know. Mindfulness is all about looking, looking anew, looking as if we hadn't, you know, looking as if we're not already familiar with it. A great mindfulness exercise is simply in any space where you ordinarily go, your living space, your, your place of work, any store you go, every time you walk in, make yourself notice one new thing that you've never noticed before. You know, it might be, it might be a physical thing, might be a pattern on the, the floor or ceiling, you know, might be how many windows or how many stairs. Might even be something like a shadow or, or the way that the light lands, you know. But just, just to make this point, and, and just that starts to move us more into our bottom-up circuits. And so mindfulness... Well, yeah, how can I say? Um, at one point, in, when I first moved to Berkeley, I had a job that I could walk to. And for seven years, I would do this same walk to work every day. And I'd be breathing and trying to practice mindfulness. And the funny thing is, after five or six years of doing this work, sometimes I'd see something, just notice a detail, and I'd be like, oh, my God, I've walked past that for six years, and I never saw that, you know? It's um, it's astonishing when we start to pay attention how many surprises are right under our nose and, and we're not even aware of it. So I'd say, I might say that step one of, of working toward inner renewal is simply practicing mindfulness, simply engaging the bottom-up circuits and starting to pay more close attention to the world. And one of the advantages of mindfulness is that it, it clarifies and cultivates the quality of attention. And this is something we don't often talk about in our very attention-deprived society. We, in the attention-deprived society, we, we tend to focus just on simply is someone paying attention or not. You know, just that, that bare binary. Um, you know, what would it mean to pay attention to the quality of your attention? What would it mean to be a connoisseur of attention? You know. So mindfulness is wonderful when we're just applying it to the objective everyday world. And it takes on another quality 
when we start applying it to people. When we start viewing people with that same kind of careful attention. Um, Attention is a precious gift. And we're always giving someone a precious gift when we're paying careful attention to them, you know. Um, And mindful, compassionate attention is really one of the most healing things in the world. And it's really to to give somebody mindful, compassionate attention. Um, There's few things we can give them that are more valuable, actually. And of course, one one important thing of witnessing other people, and especially witnessing those that, that we know very well, witnessing them carefully, is that we often can see the edges that are emerging in them. You know, we may we may see something new in them before they see it in themselves. You know, it can be a very it can be a precious gift to be in the position to witness in somebody else sort of the new the new face that is emerging in them. You know, and of course, it's it's through our own attention that we can do this. So there's mindfulness of the world, there's mindfulness of others, and there's mindfulness of ourselves, which in some ways is the most challenging, you know. Seeing my emotional patterns as they are, seeing my thought loops as they are, it's often not the prettiest thing in the world to see. And I think the way I would say it is there's a deep part of us that knows the truth. There's a deep part of us that knows especially the truth of who we are. Now, Jung would would say this is in the unconscious and has the quality of, of otherness. You know, in Buddhism, they might, we might just say that it's rooted in Buddha nature, ultimately, that it's it's the part of us that is, as it were, sitting on the seat of Bodhi, even when we're not, sit, you know, even when ego is not. And I think, to, you know, presumably there are some people that are not connected to that place at all. Like, I think people who are generally living with integrity have some kind of connection to the, the truth in themselves. Um, but I think it's the nature of this deep place that knows the truth that it doesn't share ego's biases. It doesn't share ego's sense of what is comfortable and what is convenient and what is, you know, what is pleasant. And to that extent, it at least presents to ego as fearless because it doesn't share ego's fears, if that makes any sense. You know, it it presents a kind of truth um, that terrifies ego, but it just presents it like, here's the truth.
You know, it's, it's one of the great questions in life. How honest do you want to be with yourself? You know? And it's, you know, of course we all say, oh, of course I want to be totally honest with myself. You know, like, head goes to this very, very eager, easy place. You know. It can be one of the most difficult things in the world to hear that uncompromising voice in oneself. And listening to that, following that as much as we can, is precisely what brings renewal, is precisely what brings growth. Um, it's almost the nature that, that, how can I say, when ego is sitting all comfortable in its stale world, it says, well, I want, I want renewal, you know. But renewal is, in fact, growth, and growth is uncomfortable, you know. And there's excitement with it, and there's the sort of the exhilaration of tasting the vitality of it. And it's, um, and it requires kind of an appetite for, an appetite for uncertainty, an appetite for change, an appetite for being, as it were, constantly thrown out of the nest thrown out of a, a comfortable position into into more challenge. And so it's also a, just a great question, how open to we are are we to our own newness? How open are we to the place of growth that is trying to find a way to emerge in our lives? So with that, I'll pass out the quote sheets. Save one for myself here. And here I have to apologize to the Zoomies. I don't have a a soft copy quote sheet to distribute tonight. Um, At the end of the the Sangha, I'll I'll share the, the link to my Dharma talks. You can always download a quote sheet from that. They can also write it down as you speak it. They could also do that, yes, if they were in, if they were stenographers, they they could write they could just write away, yes. Or they could have photographic memories. They we could attribute any one of a number of, of remarkable skills of the listeners. Yes. Or they could listen to the podcasts and hear all this again. <laughs> when it wouldn't be new anymore. A stale talk on inner renewal. There you go. <laughs> okay. So, I start with the book of Revelation, which, which itself is a astonishing, a very strange book in the Bible. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away. And Jesus, who sat on the throne, said, Behold, I make all things new. And it's something about the nature of the sacred that does make all things new. Um, something about the nature of the sacred that, that, sees, that sees in us or reveals to us the part of us that is new, the part of us that we hadn't wanted to look at before. 
this wonderful one from Mengzi. Mengzi was a Confucian philosopher. Um, he's often, he's the number two guy in the Confucian tradition, basically. He's, he's known in China as the second sage, the first sage being Confucius himself. And, and Mengzi is, is a man who brought a tremendous heart quality to the entire Confucian tradition. And I love this quote of his, the great man does not lose his childlike heart. And just, that's just so wonderful. Like, what would it mean to keep your childlike heart alive? From Rumi, everything you see has its roots in the unseen world. The form may change, yet the essence remains the same. Every wonderful sight will vanish, every sweet word will fade, but do not be disheartened. The source they come from is eternal, growing, branching out, giving new life and joy. Why do you weep? The source is within you, and this whole world is springing up from it. And that sounds very wonderful and magical and mystical, you know, but it's funny. Each one of us walks around with this picture we call the world. And when our mood changes, that entire picture changes, you know. And, you know, and it's so easy for us to attribute this objective. Well, the world is just this way. Let me tell you, the world is just this way, you know. But it, it's so hard to take responsibility for the way the quality of our attention is shaping this thing called the world. From Meister Eckhart, and suddenly, you know, it's time to start something new and trust the magic of new beginnings. Just a magical quote from the poet Gerard Manley Hopkins. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things. And mindfulness is really about plumbing that, that incredible freshness deep down things. Andre Gide said, one does not discover new lands without consenting to lose sight of the, sh- of the shore. That should be of the shore for a very long time. Um, that one i mean it's it's sort of an obvious nautical metaphor but it's uh it really points to you know how long are we willing to let go of the reins how long are we willing to step out of control to move into something new you know proust said my destination is no longer a place but rather a new way of seeing psychologist eric Fromm said Those whose hope is weak settle down for comfort or for violence. Those whose hope is strong see and cherish all signs of new life and are ready at every moment to help the birth of that which is ready to be born. Joseph Campbell said, We must be willing to get rid of the life we planned so as to have the life that is waiting for us. The old skin has to be shed before the new one can come. You know, and that's another fascinating question. What are the ways that we hang, are still hanging on to a story about the way our life should have been that's preventing some magic from coming into our world, you know? Christopher Isherwood said, A few times in my life I've had moments of absolute clarity when for a few brief seconds the silence drowns out the noise and I can feel rather than think and things that seem sharp and things seem so sharp and the world so fresh. I can never make these moments last. 
I cling to them, but like everything, they fade. I have lived my life on those moments. They pull me back to the presence, and I realize that everything is exactly the way it was meant to be. The scientist Rachel Carson said, A child's world is fresh and new and beautiful, full of wonder and excitement. It is our misfortune that for most of us, that clear-eyed vision, that true instinct for what is beautiful and awe-inspiring is dimmed and even lost before, before we reach adulthood. If I had influence with the good fairy who is supposed to preside over the christening of all children, I should ask, her, ask that her gift to each child in the world be a sense of wonder so indestructible it would last through a life as an, an unfailing antidote against the boredom and disenchantment of later years, the alienation from the sources of our strength. Peter Drucker said, if you want something new, you have to stop doing something old. And I think he was a business consultant, but, but that, that advice works so well just in, our, in every, any endeavor in our ordinary life. You know, if you want, want something new, you have to stop doing the old patterns, you know. Edward Lindemann said, One of life's most fulfilling moments occurs in the split second when the familiar is suddenly transformed into the dazzling aura of the profoundly new. Frederick Frank said, Once the art of seeing is lost, meaning is lost, and life itself seems ever more meaningless. Thich Nhat Hanh said, Wash every bowl, every dish, as if you are bathing the baby Buddha, breathing in, feeling joy, breathing out, smiling. Every minute can be holy, a sacred minute. Where do you seek the spiritual? You seek the spiritual in everything, everything, every ordinary thing that you do every day. Sweeping the floor, watering the vegetables, washing the dishes becomes holy and sacred, if mindfulness is there, with mindfulness and concentration, everything becomes spiritual. Pema Chodron said, to be, a lot, to be fully alive, fully human, and completely awake is to be continually thrown out of the nest. To live fully is to be in a no-man's land, to experience each moment as completely new and fresh. To live is to be willing to die over and over again. Sylvia Borstein said, Mindfulness meditation doesn't change life. Life remains as fragile and unpredictable as ever. Meditation changes the heart's capacity to accept life as it is. (coughs) Rachel Naomi Remen said, Most of us live far more meaningful lives than we know. Often finding meaning is not about doing things differently. It is about seeing familiar things in a new way. Drawing Trumpa said simply, the only answer is newness. Saraban Brethnut said, gratitude is the most passionate transformative force in the cosmos. When we offer thanks to God or to another human being, gratitude gifts us with renewal, reflection, and reconnection. It really is, it, it always amazes me. It's one of the most profound ways to increase happiness in life. 
simply to practice more gratitude. It's one of the simplest things, and it, it, it's so powerful, even though it's so simple. Sharon Salzberg says, Mindfulness helps us get better at seeing the difference between what's happening and the stories we tell ourselves about what's happening, stories that get in the way of direct experience. Often such stories treat a fleeting state of mind as if it were an entire and permanent self. And, and just the, the act of clearing off that layer of stories that we paste over the world, that itself brings a sense of renewal, you know. David White said, this was in a, a, a seminar he gave during the, the shelter-in-place portion of the pandemic. Every pilgrimage ends up in a place where you realize, my God, I've carried this all along with me. I needed to come here, but I needed to come here in order to find what I carried, what I carried from my birth, actually, and I carried from the beginning of this particular journey. And I needed the adventures, I needed the companionship, I needed the humiliations of the path in order to be shriven, as the old Catholic word says, to be radically simplified down to this core invisibility, which is just now becoming visible the birth inside me of a new youthfulness, of a new form of beckoning. And finally, Lynn Robinson says, honor your desire for a new life. Say yes to the small inklings of interest and curiosity that present themselves each day. 